Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hello, everyone. I'd like to open by sharing a bit of writing from a, a writer that I've grown fond of lately, a mostly forgotten writer who peaked in the 30s as an editor for Vanity Fair. Her name is Helen Lawrenson, and I feel like she's someone, you know, her writing is quite good, and I feel like she's someone who ought to have a reputation comparable to, you know, Dorothy Parker or Fran Lebowitz nowadays, that kind of reputation. Um, I think, uh, well, there are two reasons possibly why she doesn't have that reputation. One is just because magazine writers in general, it's an ephemeral status to have. Not many endure. And the other one is because her most famous article has a fairly racist title, I'm sorry to say. I guess it went the 1935 version of Viral. It was called uh, Why the Latins Are Lousy Lovers. I'm sorry to have to tell you folks that. And in fact, it was so famous that in the 60s, when she published a compilation of her essays, the title of it was called Latins Are Still Lousy Lovers. So I'm just saying... If there's a New York Review of Books editor out there who wants to, like, commission a new collection of her work in one of those handsome little paperbacks with an introduction by some great contemporary writer, get me to do the introduction, and then we'll give it a title that's not racist. And and we maybe won't include that once famous essay, and I'm sure we'll sell a bunch of copies. Anyway, there's an article in this book that she wrote in the 1960s reflecting on her time as an editor at Vanity Fair. It's called A Farewell to Yesterday. And I want to read it because I I just think it's funny. I'm not necessarily building up to a particular point, but it's a funny time capsule into what the media was like then. It opens with, back in the 30s, the word sophistication was often applied to people who always drank champagne with dinner, never went to the theater except on opening nights, were invited to Condé Nast's parties, knew all the Harlem after-hour spots, were dressed to the teeth from 8 p.m. on, and were on first-name terms with A. Tallulah Bankhead or B. Noel Coward. Naturally, this all took place in New York. People who lived outside New York simply weren't sophisticated unless, of course, they lived in London or Paris. Later on in the essay, she goes on to write, Vanity Fair undeniably was beautiful and amusing, urbane and unique. Its editors and their friends were, in certain areas, not so sophisticated as they thought they were, and the magazine itself did not entirely live up to Cleveland Amory's present-day description of it as capturing the very essence of the 20s and 30s. Any historical perspective shows us that what were the good old days for a few were often the bad old days for the many. We on Vanity Fair represented the few, and we were pretty insulated from the realities of the world around us. I wasn't there in the 20s, those good old 20s when people went blind from drinking bum bootleg booze and gangsters shot each other in the streets. But in the time I did spend on Vanity Fair, from January 1932 to January 1936, you would never have guessed, either from reading the magazine or from knowing the editors, that the country was in the throes of the worst depression it had ever known, as a result (laughs) of which there were 12 million unemployed, many of whom were starving and homeless. Nor would you have found any indication that, with riots all over the land, we were perhaps the nearest to revolution we had been since 1776. Or that, on the international scene, Mussolini and fascism were rampant in Italy, Hitler and Nazism were taking over Germany. It may have been due in part to this curious obtuseness to life around us that the magazine folded. 
It is difficult to imagine any magazine today as ignorant of and as impervious and indifferent to the major events in our own country and in the world at large. Editors now may not know what Laos is, but at least they've heard of it. And even the present fashion magazines for women show more cognizance of world affairs than Vanity Fair did. And then I'll just read one little bit more from this. We also made occasional light-hearted sport of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal and Brain Trust, or his measures to save the economy, and even of the forgotten man, his famous phrase for the hungry unemployed. When, in its last year, the magazine belatedly developed a mild interest in politics, owing to Condé Nast's prodding, we published a series of handsome photographs of politicians, with accompanying captions which are always superficial and often misinformed. She she crescendos to saying, You won't find this kind of abysmally frivolous ignorance in publishing circles today. Even people who are against progress at least know about it. So I mean I don't know I don't I don't know a a huge amount about sophisticated magazines of the 1930s but I mean I I thought it was very funny to read because she's talking about this very insulated very privileged culture you know you you read her you read her say that <laughs> good, good think, thing that no longer exists in the media <laughs> yeah 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 you read her and you think things haven't changed but then when she says at least people today know what Vietnam is you think <laughs> well okay maybe things have changed a little bit. <laughs> Well, as you uh, as you might expect, I've been thinking a lot about Jeff Bezos's uh, space flight this week, or his you know ten minute uh, ish sojourn into I guess not quite not quite orbit. I think he went higher than Branson. Did he pass away in space, or did did he make it back? No. Uh, once 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 he landed, you know, a million tweets bloomed and and that were like, I regret to inform you that uh, Jeff Bezos has you know that kind of thing. No, he did, in fact, make it back. And, you know, as as with the Branson uh, flight, which we talked about a few weeks ago, you know, this was given the full infomercial treatment. I found one uh, one analysis, actually, that found that the, the morning shows on, uh, on NBC, ABC, and CBS collectively devoted 212 minutes to covering the flight. Um, by comparison, those same shows have spent uh, only 267 minutes all of last year covering climate change, which is uh, which is fun. But uh, you may have seen that when Bezos returned, the kind of money quote was uh, him talking about, you know, how we live on this beautiful planet and you can't imagine how thin the atmosphere is when you see it from space. And then he said, we need to take all the heavy industry, all polluting industry and move it into space and keep Earth as this beautiful gem of a planet that it is. That's going to take decades to achieve, but you have to start and big things start with small steps. So wait, he, he's planning that the moon or elsewhere, that can be where we do all of our pollution. That can be like we can, that can be our toilet, basically. That can be, that can be what Tijuana is to the United States, but for the, the planet <laughs> as a whole. <laughs> well, like, you know, big orbital satellites or something like, I don't know. I mean, obviously, right. I mean, obviously the, the idea is just pure, like, like hokum. I mean, how do you get heavy industry and just, I mean, what? <laughs> Like what the hell is he talking about? It's uh, it's ridiculous. I just think it's great to see these billionaires doing this stuff that civilization was able to accomplish in the early 1960s. Like, oh boy, like now I get to live through the first suborbital flight. Right, right, right. Okay, well, but so I'm glad you brought this up because uh, you know the White House was asked about this, Jen Psaki, and what she said is the United States is the first country to have private companies taking private individuals to space. 
This is a moment of American exceptionalism. That's how we see it. It will be the ingenuity of all our commercial partners to help us continue advancing to the next stage of our nation's space exploration. Investments in space create jobs. They can improve life here, life here on Earth through climate monitoring and medical advancements, just to name a few. So I love that the official position of the Biden White House on this is that it's, that despite the fact that doing a suborbital flight is not a new invention, it's not a bold new frontier, the position is actually this is a bold new frontier because now you know rich people are doing it i mean that's essentially the argument and that you know that's uh that's american exceptionalism so i i was i was struck by that and i was you know struck by the media coverage although hardly uh, hardly surprised by it what i thought was truly amazing was the fact that bezos this kind of rantings about uh, heavy industry being moved into space that you know that, that was reported in some places really somberly like axios had like a whole write-up about it you know it's like why it matters uh you know that kind of stuff and you know i feel like this is so uh emblematic of you know the, the state of discourse in an unequal society and and what it looks like i mean a guy like jeff bezos can talk about how you know humanity is going to be you know a species of one trillion living on you know orbital satellites and yeah we're going to put all the heavy industry into space. Elon Musk can say, you know, what was that dumb thing he said about, you know, we're all living in a simulation, or he can talk about how he's going to build a submarine to rescue children trapped in a cave somewhere or whatever. And it all gets reported on in this like totally serious way. And this in a media environment that will treat, you know, this is this is not my point. Ozita Winevu of the New Republic made this point on Twitter, but this is the same media environment that will treat an idea like national public health insurance as some kind of like chaotic left-wing pipe dream. Being a billionaire is obviously about owning things and exploiting your workers and buying super yachts and all the rest of it. But it's also about, comes with a different kind of privilege as well, which is just that whatever you say, it will be taken extremely seriously, even and especially when it's like doesn't rise above the level of a precocious 12-year-old boy or something. I mean, putting heavy industry into space is the kind of thing I can imagine myself saying, you know, at age like, you know, nine or something when I learned about pollution or whatever. Why don't we just put it in to space <laughs> speaking of being in space uh it's it's time to slam it's time to welcome you to the jam that's right we are talking about the eagerly anticipated sequel is sequel the right word for what this is brand extension space jam a new legacy starring the dynamic duo of lebron james and bugs bunny bugs bunny oh! bugs i can't believe bring it in man Listen, I need your help. Uh, you missed your cue. Oh, rabbit season. All right, here. Now say, I'm hunting rabbits. And try to chase me. I felt a little bad asking you to watch this uh, because I, I watched it on Monday. I went to the drive-in, which was a lot of fun. Great to go to the drive-in. <laughs> Uh, uh, grueling, awful experience. Otherwise, but I just lo- I just love picturing Will Sloan at the drive-in, seeing Space Jam: A New Legacy, <laughs> surrounded by the raw public. You know, just families and kids, everybody having a great time. Uh, you, I, I imagine, illegally downloaded it. <laughs> well, a gentleman doesn't stream and tell. So going into this movie, I had a very strange mix of emotions, where I think I was genuinely and very earnestly excited to see it, while also feeling pretty certain that. I wasn't going to like it. Same. Yeah, I was excited because I love these characters. And I feel that these characters in recent years have sort of drifted away from their rightful place in the center of the culture. You know, when we were kids, Bugs Bunny and the gang were pretty ubiquitous. 
I love these characters. I'm always rooting for them because I think, as I said in the previous episode, from the mid-30s to the early 1960s, the cartoon department at Warner Brothers was this world-historic breeding ground of genius. It was this place where there was this stable of, of great directors like Tex Avery, Chuck Jones, Bob Clampett, Fritz Freeling, others, and they had extraordinary freedom because, you know, Jack Warner was not paying close attention to the shorts department, the animated shorts department at Warner Brothers. These were slot fillers to entertain stupid kids between the movies. And, you know, as long as they produced a seven-minute cartoon, they could pretty much do what they wanted. So, you know, as a result, you get cartoons like What's Opera Doc, which is a parody of Wagner's Ring Cycle. Oh, yeah, it's a classic. Yeah, killed a wabbit, killed a wabbit, classic <laughs> stuff. And, you know, over time, this stable of very eccentric and prickly characters were developed, all of whom, even the worst of them, I think, kicks Mickey Mouse's ass. Like, who, who even is Mickey Mouse? Fuck that shit. <laughs> No personality at all. Um, so the last Looney Tunes movie was Joe Dante's Looney Tunes Back in Action from 2003, which I think is a wonderful film. But I know from reading interviews with Joe Dante that it was very difficult to make. There was a lot of studio interference, and he often tells this story of showing the rough cut to the executives and them saying, hang on, now, does Bugs Bunny have to say, what's up, doc? You know, stuff like stuff like that. <laughs> and like, can, can Bugs Bunny rap? And, you know, he has said in interviews that he took on that assignment out of respect for Chuck Jones, the great animator, who was very appalled by the first Space Jam. He thought the first Space Jam, you know, took these characters and sandpapered away their personalities and put them into what was basically like a 90-minute sneaker ad. And unfortunately, he lost. And now there's Space Jam <laughs> The New Legacy, which is a 90-minute HBO Max ad. So I, I hated this movie. It felt like watching loved ones get resurrected as zombies uh did you like it before i answer that question i wanted to ask you have you seen the first space jam recently yeah i saw it within the last year actually and it's okay it's and, fucking and awful what? it's it's an awful okay. horrible film <laughs> but it's better than this <laughs> <laughs> well i think it was on a recent episode that i predicted you know before either of us had seen this one that it was this one was gonna make the first one look like bergman oh god um and and that is kind of how i that is kind of how i feel although i'm sure that if i uh, were to revisit the first one, which I absolutely loved as a kid. Mm -hmm. I'm sure now I would I would find it to be bad. But I went into this one, uh, I think very much as you did, thinking it was going to be bad, but very uh, earnestly determined to like it. <laughs> you got bugs, you got Daffy, you got you got <laughs> Granny, you know. <laughs> Well, well, here's the thing, and, and this is something, you know, I think both of us have talked about before, you know, when you're a kid, and you know, different universes that you like are mashed together, mm -hmm. there's always a multiplier effect, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you got you got like, Michael Jordan, you got some cool basketball players, it's pretty cool. But then you got bugs in the gang. And hey, there's going to be aliens now, too. You know, you don't think to yourself, well, wait a minute, like, maybe maybe putting all these things together kind of compromises them as like discrete <laughs> universes or whatever. And let, let me tell you, the executives at Warner Brothers uh, don't feel it compromises. They, they're very much uh, of the multiplier effect kind of view. It should be pointed out, actually, I didn't know this, but um, friend of the show, Alex Shepard wrote a piece in the New Republic on the movie. 
And he points out, I did not know this, that the origins of Space Jam were actually in a Nike commercial. So Bugs Bunny was in a a Nike commercial with Michael Jordan, and uh, Warner Brothers saw that there was a great response, and so they decided to uh, make a movie out of it. Well, speaking of Joe Dante, in the 90s, he was developing a movie at Warner Brothers called Termite Terrace, which would have been a biopic of the directors who made the Warner Brothers cartoons. And it would have had some live action animation stuff, you know, very Who Framed Roger Rabbit style of them interacting with the characters. And the studio instead decided to make Space Jam, which, I mean, obviously that turned out to be a very lucrative decision for them, but it points to what these brands mean to a studio like Warner Brothers. These are not things with their own histories and their own meanings. They are, well, in the case of Space Jam A New Legacy, they're kind of like disembodied signifiers that can be (laughs) trotted out. Well, in the case of Space Jam A New Legacy, it's like, okay, you like Bugs Bunny? You have fond memories of him from your childhood? (laughs) Ever heard of Harry Potter? (laughs) Well, let's get them together and like, maybe maybe if we associate uh, Harry Potter with another thing you liked as a child that will make you feel more more warmly towards all the great stuff you can stream on hbo max well i also like that you know it's true that the characters uh, and these you know these universes exist as like disembodied signifiers but i think it's also the case that they represent different market shares for warner brothers as well and that's something you can directly see on screen based on some of the cameos that happen so the plot involves lebron james who in an early scene we discover as a child he gave up fun he disavowed fun. Yeah, that's right. His coach, uh, Avon Barksdale, uh, encourages him to put the dang Game Boy away. Interestingly, he's playing, I thought he was playing Super Mario, but it's some kind of Bugs Bunny game. I don't even know if that's a real game. I think it is. I think I might have played that game when I was a kid. Oh man, I missed out on that one. But it's on one of those like big, heavy, classic Game Boys. And uh, yeah, and his coach tells him, LeBron, you're, you know, you're the best I ever coached. If you, put, if you put down the video games, you could be the best ever. And then so he throws the Game Boy away, throws it literally in the garbage, which made, which made me quite, which made me mad. Give it to Goodwill, for God's sake. Somebody <laughs> can get some use out of that. <laughs> Somebody who's less good at basketball could play it. And I think this is an example of the poor storytelling of this movie, because Bugs Bunny in this opening scene is introduced as representative of fun, which LeBron James has tossed aside in favor of hard work. There's a hard work versus fun dichotomy that's presented here. And yet the movie does not further develop this. You would think that when LeBron later on encounters Bugs Bunny again, Bugs would be symbolic of whole sides of his personality, of his of his potential life that he's thrown away. But that is not the case. The movie does not further develop that. <laughs> well, once we once we've talked through the plot, we can we can try to kind of unpack whatever kind of convoluted like moral this film has. It's 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 pretty it's pretty difficult to identify. But so after this little prologue, we jump ahead to the future. You know, LeBron is is actual LeBron. He's a superstar. And we meet his son, Dom, who is more interested in designing some kind of basketball video game than he is in actually playing basketball. One of the central conflicts of the movie is introduced, one of the central tensions is introduced when Dom and his friend are playing basketball on, uh, on the family's home court. And LeBron comes out and, and chides him for not taking it seriously enough. Yeah, and this is such trite family movie bullshit. LeBron not recognizing that his son has to pursue his own path and, you know, whatever. Stupid, boring. Didn't maybe a part of you find the stuff between LeBron and his son charming? Uh, maybe in a different movie I would. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I thought 
thought LeBron was okay in this movie. I think Le- I think LeBron's yeah. great. I want to want to want to say that on record. I, I think, think he's he's uh, think, better than Michael Jordan was in the first one. He's quite charismatic, mm-hmm. and he does a hundred and ten percent of what you can do with uh, with a role in a script like this. So LeBron and his son also go to a meeting at Warner Brothers, where the executives unveil a new algorithm that they've generated, and this algorithm, which is kind of like a sentient algorithm, it's it's an algorithm with its own brain. It's the latest in algorithmic technology does this presentation where it says hey lebron what if instead of just watching a movie you could be in the movie what if you could be on screen with batman right now and lebron says you know what i want to focus on basketball and also i think this is a terrible idea and this introduces an element of social commentary in the movie where the film is against bravely against surveillance and tech overreach because <laughs> <laughs> because the algorithm that's producing content for warner brothers is like a sentient being played by don Cheadle who lives in the warner brothers server and his character's name is al g rhythm <laughs> yeah yeah boy that gets old pretty quickly <laughs> the plot of the movie really kicks in when don Cheadle he sees all he's 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 he is the surveillance state, okay? He's able to watch the studio executives being yes-men and, like, agreeing with LeBron when he says this is a bad idea, and he's completely incensed. Like, he's watching them on camera. So he takes over, like Hal 9000, and because he's seen everything, he knows that there's tension between LeBron and his son. So he sucks LeBron's son in, and he kind of seduces him. He's like, listen, I know your father doesn't understand you. Look, you're in the Warner server. Look at, look at how cool this is. Like, I'm basically your new dad, and remember, I see all. I know all. And this social commentary about the sinister surveillance state, I think, rings a little hollow in a movie that's all about, look at all this cool stuff we own and this incredible technology that we harness it with. This stuff blew my mind. So as soon as Don Cheadle was introduced, I'm like, well, it seems like he's the antagonist. I was like, wait a minute. So the antagonist in this Warner Brothers film is the Warner Brothers algorithm (laughs) itself. It's because, like, this is a movie that's all about... Warner Brothers and its intellectual property and its technology and Warner is so great. Warner is basically better than Disney, but their market research also shows, <laughs> uh-oh, people are really suspicious about all this tech stuff. Like we're we're selling them HBO Max, but they also don't like the algorithms. <laughs> so we have to thread this needle. So so we have to we have to thread this needle by uh making an antagonist who's a sort of meta ironic commentary <laughs> on like corporate cultural monopoly. I know. And and I lo- I love that scene where, where Don Cheadle is talking to Dom, LeBron's son, and yeah, he knows all this stuff about, like, the tensions between him and his father, and the son is acting surprised, and he's like, I know a lot about you. Mm-hmm. It's like the algorithm knows all. Well, I'm definitely not getting an HBO Max subscription right now. Uh, so anyway, LeBron also gets sucked in, and inside the serververse, that's what it's called, the Warner Brothers serververse, it is rendered as kind of like outer space, where all the intellectual property has its own planet. And we see LeBron flying past the Casablanca planet, the Wizard of Oz planet, the Harry oh. Potter planet, and eventually he lands on the cartoon planet which looks like you know classic warner brothers animation and he finds that there's only one inhabitant on the cartoon planet right now and it is poor bugs bunny and bugs bunny is sad because all of his friends all of his close friends yosemite sam elmer fudd daffy duck they've all left him because at some point algae rhythm has come to the planet and sold them a bill of goods and said hey 
why don't you explore the whole server verse? Why don't you go check out all the other planets? So again, you know, what is going on in this movie? Because, you know, Bugs Bunny, our hero, is lonely on the Toons planet. And the, the cause of this is the Warner Brothers algorithm telling the other Toons to go away and be mashed together with, like, you know, other genres and stuff like that, leaving Bugs Bunny alone. I mean, it makes no sense because what is Al G. Rhythm's game plan with this exactly? If his bosses find out he's doing this, he's in big trouble. <laughs> he was, he was, no, I don't, I don't think he's in trouble at all. He could basically have just been trying to make another Space Jam movie without Bugs Bunny. Space Jam meets Harry Potter. Wiley Coyote figures out that he's a Hufflepuff. Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, we basically do get this because, you know, LeBron tells Bugs, we got to get a basketball team and fight algae rhythm and basketball doesn't matter why this is the case well well but, but this is important though because this is what the stakes of the movie are because if lebron loses then he and his son and uh and i guess all the tunes already in the server they have to stay there for, forever the tunes get deleted if they lose that's the big oh, that's right, the, okay. the big stakes the, the tunes will be destroyed forever and again this makes no sense because why would it be in the algorithm's interest to like destroy the properties it controls well warner brothers needs to know that the server has gone rogue that they've done too good a job with the algorithm and now like it's it's destroying itself from the inside uh so so anyway there's this grueling montage of bugs and lebron going around the server and reuniting the gang and so you see various looney tunes who have been superimposed in scenes from classic warner brothers movies <laughs> this leads somebody it might be lebron to deliver one of my favorite lines of the movie maybe it's bugs bunny you know they're shooting past all these different just like franchises floating in space and someone says whoa this server verse is massive so many worlds to explore <laughs> okay i love the part where lebron he's got a whiteboard and he's like assembling his dream team of warner brothers properties okay well we want superman we want king kong and it's like aside from disney what company would anybody be able to summon just a quick list of 10 properties they own who knows that Warner Brothers owns King Kong? Nobody knows that. But LeBron is just like, ah, yes, that classic Warner Brothers character, King Kong. <laughs> so we in this montage, uh, I wrote it down. We get to see, we get to see briefly see LeBron James inside Mad Max Fury Road. Yosemite Sam is in Casablanca. He's Sam the piano player. That's right. Uh, we get to see Elmer Fudd inside of Austin Powers. We get to see something to do with Game of Thrones. I can't remember who right. they get from Game of Thrones. Granny and Speedy Gonzalez are in The Matrix. The Matrix, right? And it's funny because we're basically already in The Matrix. So now this is like Inception-like, a kind of a, a sub, you know, a sub-Matrix. And uh, Lola Bunny, who has been reimagined as sort of uh, a feminist icon in this film, we see her basically getting the approval of Wonder Woman. Oh, and we see Daffy in Planet DC. So we know that this movie is a feature-length commercial because, first of all, these scenes are not making any satiric point about the movies. It's just, what if a famous movie had a Looney Tune in it? briefly and the point is these movies are great you love these movies you love the looney tunes and here they are together and we own all this cool stuff and you can stream it right now so many worlds to explore and you know there's some wasted potential as well as some sloppy writing here because okay what would actually happen in the universe of the movie following the rules of the movie if the looney tunes disbanded and spread throughout all the intellectual property here like if Yosemite Sam really does go into planet Casablanca, if you or I watched Casablanca right now on HBO Max, would we see him? 
Like, what are the rules? If he contaminates that world, does he contaminate Casablanca forever, for all eternity? I don't think so, but you're right. There are some pretty interesting kind of metaphysical questions here. Mm -hmm. Like, what are the consequences of something happening in the server? And what are the rules of each planet? Because the Looney Tunes planet just seems like a society where the characters (laughs) live. But if you go to the Casablanca planet, it just seems the movie is playing on a loop. (laughs) You know, like Humphrey Bogart's not just walking around, hanging out. (laughs) It's just a planet that's like Northwest Africa during the Second World War. (laughs) I actually think there's a way to make a good and funny and genuinely satiric movie out of this premise. Because, okay, imagine the Looney Tunes are loose. The algorithm has has purposely set them loose in the Warner Brothers serververse so that Yosemite Sam is in Casablanca. So the implications of that, I think should be that if somebody is watching Casablanca on HBO Max, all of a sudden Yosemite Sam is in it. Casablanca has been contaminated forever. And then there's this wild mixing of all these universes. They all fall together into this big soup because that's what they are in the algorithm. That's what they are in the streaming channel. They're just all this content that's totally undifferentiated. And the movie could become this kind of cautionary tale about what happens if you take all of these, I hate to say properties, all of these artworks and just treat them as if they're nothing but content and throw them to the mercy of the algorithm. But of course, the movie doesn't actually do that. I, I know the movie kind of sets the algorithm up as the villain, but to really follow through on that premise would be to make the algorithm too much of a villain. Yeah, at the end of the day, it would be too strong an indictment of the business model that, you know, WB and other companies like it are now <laughs> built around. If they were to take this premise to its actual logical conclusion, the whole movie would just be an indictment uh, like of itself. And obviously that wasn't going to happen. So instead, when Daffy Duck is like wreaking havoc in the DC planet, Superman comes along and writes everything because ultimately these discrete units are able to correct themselves because Superman is so strong and we own them, folks. So anyway, they get all the Looney Tunes together and... I mean, I hate this movie's depiction of the Looney Tunes for a number of reasons. The thought of Bugs pining for his friends. Bugs is not friends with Elmer Fudd, okay? He's not friends with Yosemite (laughs) Sam. And that seems like a petty grievance, but these tensions, these character traits... Do do Bugs and the Roadrunner even know each other? No, no, they they exist in separate worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And these may seem like petty grievances, but they're actually quite important because without these dynamics, without these rules, the characters are nothing. They're just the plush mascot versions of the characters that you could see at Six Flags. And essentially, that's what they turn into when they turn into 3D animation. Didn't you think they looked horrifying when they became the 3D versions of themselves? Well, yeah, again, that that was terrifying. And that happens because Algae Rhythm, who's uh, kind of hijacked LeBron's son's video game design talents, you know, he's forcing Dom to play against his father. And so all of the Looney Tunes get enhancements, which means they go from being two-dimensional cartoons to being three-dimensional. And again, since it's it's the Don Cheadle algorithm that's doing this, I feel like the implication is that it's bad. And yet this is just happening in the mm-hmm. movie. It's like, gee, wouldn't you hate it if uh, some kind of distant corporate algorithm like manipulated the characters that you know and love? The movie continues. They have the basketball game, but it's like not really a basketball game. It's a basketball slash video game. And there's rampant cheating on both sides there's a bit where uh you know what fuck it i'm not going to describe the comical bits that happen in the basketball game it's beneath (laughs) my dignity 
But as I said on the last episode, I suspected would be the case, and it turned out to be true, that compare it to the Lego movie or compare it to Ready Player One, those movies are also like crass and commercial advertisements. But their ostensible thesis is that you own this intellectual property too. In Ready Player One, it's saying that this intellectual property is our modern folklore and we all share in it. And in the Lego movie, it's like, take our brands and build whatever you want from them. We may own the brand but ultimately you can control it because it's in your hands in the form of Lego. And in this movie, it's not saying anything like that. It's saying, we own this and we can do what we want with it. And if we want to put a Looney Tune in Mad Max, we can do that. And we own the server. <laughs> well, the, the film does try to have a little bit of that with the stakes being a little bit uh, too low by sort of, you know, at the beginning of Act 3, there's this added dimension of people watching the game on a live stream all around the world being forcibly beamed into the the game and the algorithm saying all these people are going to have to stay here in the server verse forever um, unless LeBron wins. Which sounds fun. I would love to go in there and like hang out with Harry Block from Deconstructing Harry on the Deconstructing <laughs> Harry planet. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, this, this this does raise the stakes quite a lot because, you know, imagine you're a regular person and you tune in to watch a, a live stream of a basketball game between LeBron James and an algorithm and then before you know it, you're trapped inside a computer being forced to watch like a mashup of Harry Potter and Game of Thrones and basketball for all eternity. It sounds pretty bad. I think it's interesting how nonplussed those human characters are. Like, they're they're beamed into this game <laughs> where ringside you can see the penguin and the mask. And, like, the Flintstones are there. And if, if that happened to me, I would be like, what the... what? The, the, it's King Kong! Oh, my God! You, you know what I like is how long it takes LeBron to, like, lose his awe at seeing the Looney Tunes. Like, <laughs> like his mind is blown when he sees Bugs Bunny. And it's like, okay, buddy, you're LeBron James. And then that just continues. So, like, when Marvin the Martian appears, he's going, like, Marvin the Martian? For real? And it's like, all right, I don't think you, you would be surprised by this anymore it's like you you're sitting inside of a cartoon inside of a computer and you spent the past 15 minutes talking to bugs bunny are you really that surprised that it's like oh yeah marvin the martian's here too also when you get to that <laughs> level who else can you socialize with i mean lebron james one of the biggest stars in the world one of the most famous people he would have to associate with really famous people like bugs bunny and marvin the martian you know that would just be this is the only people who travel in those elite circles well well bugs You've had lots of teammates throughout your career. Obviously, the Tunes. You got Granny. You got a Duck. You got a Pig. You got all type of amazing teammates. What type of teammate is LeBron? Did he fit in with the Tunes? LeBron, he's so supportive. He helped me realize my full potential as the goat. Wait, hold up. You think you're the goat? Uh, duh. Of course. <laughs> Playing in one game, Bugs, in our new movie does not make you the goat. The film ends as it must with LeBron and the tunes beating algae rhythm. The algorithm is apparently destroyed. But as part of the, the final maneuver, Bugs Bunny makes a move that destines him and him alone to be deleted from the server. <laughs> and Bugs Bunny has a big death scene, an emotional death scene, where he croaks out a final, that's all, folks, and ascends. This is because uh, the rules of the game uh, are constantly in flux. Which I think is a problem, frankly, from a dramatic 
standpoint. Right. I mean, it's sort of like, what if basketball was a video game? And it's like, you know, and you got style points and stuff like that, as well as just, you know, regular scoring. But video games still have rules. So like, yeah, like the coyote brings out this machine that shoots like 500 balls at once. And they all land in the basket and they get 500 points. And like, it's, it's a funny enough gag, but I mean, it's, it's cheating. Well, so there's a, there's a clear parallel here between Space Jam and New Legacy and the first film. Because in the first film, after uh, the first half, they're also getting completely destroyed. Like the tunes are losing to the Monstars. And in that movie, Michael Jordan just has to give them like the perfect pep talk. And they just have to believe in themselves and things are okay. And I was wondering, because there's a, also a locker room scene in this movie whether it was going to follow the same blueprint. But no, instead, it's just LeBron saying, Bugs, it's time for you to, uh, you to do what you do best. And let's pull out some of that old, like, Acme shit and just, like, manipulate the rules of the game, which we're somehow <laughs> able to do in a universe whose uh, physics are entirely controlled by our opponent. So Bugs Bunny dies, and then, you know, we see LeBron back on Earth. But who does he run into on the street? It's Bugs Bunny himself. Bugs Bunny has survived his certain death because the point seems to be that nothing dies in the server verse. Bugs Bunny's not really in control of his own destiny. Only Warner Brothers is in control of his own destiny. Yes! His pixels will be manipulated (laughs) and destroyed and returned and used in any way that Warner Brothers wants. So this is the real message of the movie, because the movie appears towards the end of Act 3 to be closing in on some real dramatic stakes. Because earlier in the movie, we've seen Dom, the designer of this game, LeBron's son, accidentally stumble. You know, he and his dad play the game briefly, and they accidentally stumble on a special move that crashes the game. So uh, because Don Cheadle uh, and his team, the Goon Squad, are cheating, Dom reasons that if they repeat the same move, they can just crash the entire thing and bring down the game. But there's a catch. Because when Dom did that, it deleted his character. So LeBron decides heroically he's gonna he's gonna step in and do this move, but then Bugs Bunny at the last minute jumps in and does the move for him. And did you shed a little bit of a tear when it looked like Bugs was gonna die? <laughs> Our old friend. I was momentarily gonna be impressed that like, wow, is is the film are they really killing off Bugs Bunny? Like is is this <laughs> film actually engaged in a little bit of like cultural bloodletting? Because I can almost respect that. Um, but so the yeah. implication here, and again, you know, the film is momentarily flirting with having real stakes. Because the implication is that, you know, in order to save all of the tunes, all of the other characters from all the other franchises, the White Walkers from Game of Thrones, all the other people who are assembled, in order to save LeBron's family and also all these random, you know, civilians who've been beamed into the serververse to watch the game, Bugs Bunny has to sacrifice himself. It's like one brand must fall so that all the other brands can survive and flourish and and so that there's an audience to enjoy them. It's like momentarily there's real stakes. But then, as you say, the film allows us to think Bugs Bunny's died for about a minute and a half because then, you know, LeBron, who by this point in the movie has understood that video game camp is more important to basketball camp for his son. And then also his son, you know, decides to hold on to the basketball his dad's given them because you never know. He might shoot some hoops while he's at video game camp. And we've all learned valuable lessons about sonhood and fatherhood and all the rest of it. But as you say, who should show up but Bugs Bunny negating the entire crescendo of the third act and I really think you're right that the the ultimate message here is it's like don't worry Bugs Bunny isn't dead because because as long as the charts and graphs say that we can bring him back and there's a market <laughs> we will bring him back it's like look at the end of the day there's a higher power than even the algorithm and it's the, <laughs> and it's the insatiable maw of free market capitalism 
we're not going to kill off Bugs Bunny. <laughs> no one can kill Bugs Bunny. It's true, because no matter how long Bugs Bunny has been around, no matter who allegedly created him, no matter what you think your personal relationship is with him, the company owns him and they will decide if he lives or dies. Right, yeah, you may think you know Bugs Bunny, you may think you know Porky Pig, but God damn it, we're going to make Porky Pig rap, which is something that happens in this movie, probably the most cringeworthy scene in the movie. We should have mentioned it earlier. <laughs> and not only are we going to do that, but we're going to include this in a film with a massive audience of spectators applauding and cheering. That's you, the real fans, and you will like this and you will applaud <laughs> alongside all your favorite characters because we tell you so and you will keep coming and shelling out money for tickets for these movies and you will keep lapping them up because this is our world, not yours. Wabbitwikes. Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. I was reading an article on Deadline.com about Space Jam A New Legacy. It opened at number one at the box office, even though it also premiered simultaneously on HBO Max. So, so far, it's been fairly successful. It's exceeded expectations. And this article was explaining why that was. And it just gives an interesting insight. Again, I'm not sure if I'm crescendoing to any point here, but it gives an interesting insight into how movies are marketed, or at least how they are perceived to be marketed now. It says, Warners, according to iSpot, bought ads for Space Jam 2 across Nickelodeon, ABC, NBC, TNT, and Cartoon Network on shows such as SpongeBob SquarePants, NBA Basketball, America's Got Talent, and The Loud House. So that's not so surprising. But then it goes on to say, Social media was huge here for Space Jam 2, with Relish Mix reporting that the sequel's reach across Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram was 601.2 million, well above family animated norms, thanks to the social power of LeBron James, 166.2 million followers, and Zendaya, 138 million followers. She voices Lola Bunny. Quote, The quadrangulation of Looney Tunes social network, 19.1 million, along with HBO Max, growing to 3.3 million, Warner Brothers Pictures, 56.7 million, and the channels for the Space Jam movie, 868,000, are driving strong activity on international markets. Instagram is most notable at 38% in terms of social platform segment at 234.1 million fans for the cast, Key soundtrack artists added to the SMU and activating with song posts, including John Legend, 43 million, on the red carpet at the premiere, plus the Jonas Brothers, 25 million, and Joyner Lucas, 7 million. And James has been posting about the film heavily, and even Dwayne Johnson did so to his 58.8 million Facebook fans about a song by his wife, Lauren Hashian, that's in the film. Reports relish media about the pre-buzz for Space Jam 2, Conversation ran wildly mixed, with throwbacks to the original, crunchy comparisons of LeBron versus Michael Jordan, with hopes that MJ makes a cameo, and dreams of Space Jam 3 based on Kobe or Steph Curry. With a rowdy hoops crowd, fans were expectedly skeptical about the remake. While many fans can't wait to post their reactions on eared materials after they see the film on the day-and-date big-and-little-screen release. So anyway, I'm not going to read any more from it, but I found that article dizzying to read. It just shows that there's a whole new 
new world of, of... I love how it's just like a straightforward market report. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There, there's something there's something I find unsettling about the fact that like, yeah, Dwayne The Rock Johnson has an Instagram page. And like, theoretically, an Instagram page is where you let your fans in on your life and you post. No, but it's not. It's it, it's real estate. It's property. It's where the brand is made concrete and it be you know becomes advertising space because that's what all this is about now. You know, it's, it's not really a good sign that our mode of cultural production is shifted to a business model that's just basically the fire festival but for <laughs> yeah. movies it's like what if, what if we just put so many different celebrities or associate so many different celebrities so many different universes with this movie that we essentially tap all of the discrete properties that they have and all of the different social media spaces that they have to market and promote it and because that process is so overwhelmed any kind of like actual vision for what the film is you know the whole thing really is just a tangled web of different like marketing tie-ins and stuff like there's no there there yeah and i i find it a little unsettling that a guy like john legend who by the way i'm not a fan of <laughs> well you're a, you're a big fan of his wife oh well she's great i'm glad she's back on twitter she she is back on twitter right but i love yeah i love that they're these quirky relatable stars and they're always posting about their relatable content they're posting these real insights into their lives as as fun cool celebrities and then they're also like hey check out space jam 2 it looks really good uh me on my authentic account that that i run myself and that is real and that's unfiltered between me and you we don't have like the press isn't in here distorting my words it's just me and you the fans i'm telling you i love space jam 2 god you know this movie is so disingenuous because it tries to set up don Cheadle, the algorithm as the villain and it's like this entire movie just is the algorithm that's all it is i mean that's very true because we've seen a movie where the algorithm is the antagonist and within the rules of the movie the very sketchily defined rules of the movie the algorithm controls the basketball game so it's literally impossible to beat nevertheless bugs and lebron do beat it but then at the end of the movie the algorithm is still one because bugs bunny survives <laughs> there is no escape it's like it's like it's the spectacle of democratic participation in culture and politics under capitalism <laughs> now watch this drive <laughs> Jokes. Oh, and this was one bar most famous of all quotes. This battle is now over the that that's all folks. <laughs>